It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Before this episode begins, I want to tell you about something a little time sensitive that I'm part of, which is a three-day virtual conference called Love Yourself First, How to Develop Supportive Friendships and Meaningful Relationships. This is really up my alley. I think it's up your alley too, given the topics that I cover. And this is actually something that I was invited to by a previous podcast guest, Coach Lee Hopkins, who did an episode with me in August 2022, invited me to speak and be part of this wonderful group of people. And the conference is taking place February 10th through February 12th, 2023. And there you can learn some different tactics to loving yourself, creating lasting connections that will enrich, enrich your life. This is a paid conference. And so full transparency. There is a small fee involved with it. And I have a promo code. The promo code is, let me pull it up, uncomfortable. 20. So uncomfortable, just like this might get uncomfortable, but uncomfortable 20. And you guessed it, that'll take 20% off the cost of the ticket. And I'll receive a small fraction of that. And the rest of the money goes towards running the event. And if you want to invite a friend to this and buy two tickets in the same transaction, you actually get a 50% off discount on the second ticket. So if you're looking to deepen your relationships, create more joy, affection, and really just learn from people like myself, from Coach Lee, all the amazing speakers that he has brought together for this, you can go to the link in the description. It's a little long. The full link is alwaysloveyourselffirst.eventbrite.com, and that's where you'll en enter that promo code uncomfortable twenty two zero. And I'll put it in the description of this episode and also in the show notes so that you can easily click through and check it out. See if it's a fit for you. Use a discount, invite your friends, share, spread the message if you would like. And now on to the episode. Today's conversation with my wonderful guest, Sarah, is going to be focused on depression. And I'm going to pause for one quick second, Sarah. My guest for today, whose name is Sarah, she and I are going to talk about depression, which I feel like has become something that more people are leaning into and talking about more openly, more with confidence. But it's still something that I feel has, a I wouldn't say a taboo feeling around it, but maybe a hesitancy. Maybe there's still shame around depression. Maybe some people feel unsure. Are they clinically depressed? Is everybody depressed? Is this a normal human experience? Is this something to be concerned about? And one place I want to begin with you in our conversation, Sarah, is 
around your experience with seasonal affective disorder, often shortened to SAD. And I felt like that was a timely place, or it is a timely topic for us today, given that we're recording this as we move from fall to winter. And many listeners will be tuning into this during the winter time where it's very common based on the weather changes, based on the light changes, the timing of when the sun is out. And a lot of things during the winter time can trigger depression, even though it's often seen as such a joyous time. Something that's come up on previous episodes of this show around this time of year is how Sometimes it's not the most wonderful time of the year, as some of the songs go. Sometimes it can be a really tough year. And Sarah, you were beginning to tell me offline about your own personal experiences with... Do you say SAD or do you call it SAD? I call it SAD, just because the name is so evocative of what's going on. Yes, I was telling you that it's embarrassing because here I did, I wrote an entire book about depression and yet when I started suffering from seasonal affective disorder from SAD myself, I it took me about six months to realize it. I, I saw all these symptoms appearing and I just attributed them to something else. It's like you said, the normal human experience includes feeling sad, feeling down, sometimes just not being able to get out of bed. For me, the normal human experience also can include gaining weight and not feeling like doing anything. Because of course, so I moved up here. I'm in Northern Idaho. I'm in the, the Idaho Panhandle, probably about a hundred miles from the border with Canada, pretty far up there, up North. And I came here during the pandemic, moved into my house in, at just as uh, at the end of 2020. And I did fine for that first winter, but the second winter that I was here, the sun goes down really early. And so I have all these dark days and there was a change in my life. I had been looking after my father. He had, he was very elderly. He just recently passed away He's at 96 with Alzheimer's disease. So for a couple of years, I had been looking after him. And then he moved into a nursing home in September of 21. So it's September last year, he moved into a nursing home. And so I'm here by myself now and enjoying the lovely winter. But like I said, it gets dark really early. In November, it was like the first week of November. Daylight savings time had just started or ended. I don't remember which way it goes, but it had just switched. And the sundown was at like 4.20 p.m. And so early November, we're six weeks before the shortest days of the year. And it's already, it's 4.30, it's dark. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what have I done? But so through that winter, I started, I got so that I I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. I just slept, stayed in bed forever. I was gaining weight. I didn't want to do anything. That's a symptom, they call it anhedonia. I, and I'm kicking myself because I realized this now, but at the time when I was suffering from it, I didn't. So I love to ski, but you couldn't drag me out to ski. I, I love to do things that I usually love to do. You could not get me to do them. I was just sitting around when I got out of bed, sitting around, eating, drinking, not doing much. And my mood just so low and not wanting, like I said, not wanting to do the things that I usually enjoy. So I finally 
it wasn't until it went away. It's like March of the next year when sun starts coming up at a reasonable time and you get 12 hours of daylight. That's when I started looking back and realizing, oh, all that stuff I had written about, that was me. So yeah, it is everywhere. And I'm really grateful. We also had a moment to talk about some of the amazing women like Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka who were open and honest about what they were going through. And it obviously really affected their careers. Simone Biles dropped out of the Tokyo Olympics, Naomi Osaka from the French Open, I believe. And that's a career hit for them. But they were open about, my mental health is really challenged. I need to do this. I need to take care of myself. And by doing that, being public about it, that's just so great and forward leading. It's a good thing to get people to think about what's going on in their own lives and admit it doesn't matter, really doesn't matter what how, how healthy you've been in the first, what, 30 years of your life, whatever. Things happen and our mental health is something that can be challenged. It is challenged. So for me, it was losing sunlight. It actually makes a big difference in in you, in your body, in how your body works, how your brain works, and that leads to mental health challenges. It just does. It's not a matter of will or weakness or strength. It's a I learned that depression is a physical process. And when you start hitting some physical levels of, of different different substances in your brain, that's when things like depression or anxiety can start happening. So anyway, it happens to all of us. Thank you for leading off with that because I think removing the judgment around it is so important because there are factors that are not always within our control. There are things that can happen to us so subtly that we don't even realize it. And it's often not till a point where it gets really bad that people even consider addressing it. Another thing I know you're interested in and is very timely as we're recording this in October, 2022, mm-hmm. you were sharing about some articles that came out about serotonin, I believe, right? Yes. Some, and how they led people to misunderstand the antidepressants, but how they work. Is that right? Yes. Yes. It was weird. A couple of people came up to me and knowing that I had written this book about depression, they said, Hey, did you hear that serotonin has been debunked? I'm like, Huh? <laughs> and that people are taking antidepressants, antidepressants that don't work. And I said, huh? So I looked into it and there was a, an article in a very prestigious journal. There was a team in the United Kingdom and they had done a review that looked at the serotonin hypothesis of depression. So there's this theory that maybe depression comes about from not having enough serotonin in your brain. So serotonin, it's a neurotransmitter. It's a signaling chemical that is in our brains and our bodies. Our our bodies use serotonin and so does the brain. And serotonin happens to act on a a lot of areas that are very relevant for depression. So appetite, mood for sure, mood, sleepiness. So serotonin is one of the active chemicals that's making, affecting how we experience those things. So Back in the 1960s, someone had come up with a theory that, hey, maybe depression is caused by there not being enough serotonin in your brain. So that was a theory that was around for a couple of decades, but by the 1980s, it had been disproved. People saw that, no, we can actually 
artificially lower serotonin in people's brains by what we feed them. It comes from the diet. And even though we can see that they have less serotonin in their brain, they don't get depressed. So it's not that. The reason that the theory was born, the way it came around was back in the 1940s and 50s, antidepressants were discovered. So they were discovered not because somebody was chasing down, hey, what happens with serotonin, but they were actually in from several drugs that were intended to treat something else. So one of them was, there was a drug they were testing to treat tuberculosis. And so you have all these really sick people dying of tuberculosis. You give them this drug and first of all, they're still dying of tuberculosis. It didn't help the tuberculosis at all. But for some reason, they are weirdly happy. They are, it sounds like it, it switched a lot of them like into some sort of euphoria. So these sick and dying people taking this drug are all of a sudden really happy. So the drug companies thought, maybe we should try this as an antidepressant. And it worked. There's another drug that was originally developed to be an antihistamine, but turned out to be an antidepressant. So you have these medicines that are surprised when they try testing them, they find out that, hey, these are antidepressants. Okay. So antidepressants start getting prescribed. People are taking them and benefiting from them. And it was like 60 to 70% of the people who took these drugs, depressed people who took these drugs were getting over their depression. So these are wonderful things. So around the, like I said, around the 60s, so that started, it was really getting big in the 50s. People were getting the drugs, doing well on them. Around the early 60s, that's when someone said, hey, I think the way these drugs work is by affecting serotonin in the brain. That was the prevailing theory for a while. But then, like I said, around the 80s, that that's when they realized that, no, it's doing, it's not, it, the drugs do affect how the brain processes serotonin. They do affect that. But stepping aside from the drugs, we can show that depression is not caused by lower serotonin. Like I said, they could artificially lower someone's serotonin and in their brain and nothing happens. They don't get depressed. So that's not it. But the drugs still work. So over time, the drugs get refined. They come out with some different varieties that have fewer side effects, a little bit trying to get them more potent. They tend to be about the same effectiveness, but fewer side effects. So those are most commonly prescribed now. So the fact that in 2022, somebody comes up by and says, hey, serotonin, lowered serotonin doesn't cause depression. It's confusing because like I said, everybody, everybody knows I should, and I'll have to come back and address this, everybody knows. But it was proved back in the 1980s that no, serotonin doesn't cause depression, but antidepressants do affect serotonin levels, and that does lead people to getting better. I say everybody knows because one of the things that came up with the, the discussion around that article is that there's a whole lot of medical schools and other areas of institutions of higher learning that apparently are still teaching that the serotonin theory of depression, which is really weird because like I said, the scientific community, the medical community has known for decades, that's not what causes depression. It's like I said, the drugs that affect the serotonin levels in your brain are the most common ones used as antidepressants and they work. They are antidepressant. There's been community tests that show that a little more than half of the people who show up with the first episode of depression, so they're, they haven't taken any drugs, they're newly depressed, they take these sero- these drugs that antidepressants that affect the serotonin levels and a little more than half get better just from that. They go into remission, their depression is alleviated just from those drugs. 
a little less than half, it isn't. They have to go on to further further steps before they're gonna their depression is gonna be treated. Like I said, it was just it's weird and it's unfortunate that people take a that some of the headlines swirling around are that antidepressants don't work anymore. Anti they work as well as they've ever worked. They're their efficacy, their effectiveness never depended on a theory. They were observed first, and then somebody tried to fit a theory, hey, I think this is what's happening. He was wrong, but okay. So they work as well as they've ever worked. <laughs> the theory has gone away. Other theories have replaced it, but they still work just like they've ever worked. That's really helpful to hear because certainly it's easy to see a headline and believe it. Yeah. And we have to really become aware of how the media will sensationalize things in order to get our attention. And I think it's nice that a lot of people are becoming more aware of the media's role in discussions on health and how uh, a lot of us are concerned about our health. So it's easy to taunt us to read an article, to buy a magazine, to pick up a newspaper if a headline yeah. catches our attention, but it can be incredibly dangerous and really becoming savvy to the fact that or just learning to read an article and understand what is fact versus what is opinion or since or something that's being used sensationalized and i think a lot of people just haven't been trained to even understand how to read something health based and this has been something i've been growing more and more passionate about because i've seen so much happen in the wellness world so much misinformation spread around so many anecdotes being used as like they're the same as scientific studies and it can be really confusing and frustrating. It can be dangerous because what if somebody sees a headline like that and just decides to stop taking antidepressants? Yeah. And what if that's what's keeping their brain working in a way that's healthy for them or important for them to be able to function? That makes me really uncomfortable. And that also leads me into something else that we were speaking about generally before we started recording, which was the impact of the pandemic on depression and how they're yeah. just now uh, collecting data on that. I would love to hear more about that from you, Sarah. Yes. So the data is starting to come in. So depression and anxiety just soared during the pandemic. And when I say the pandemic, I also have to, I have to include the pandemic restrictions. So for me, the fact that I'm living in a Northern latitude in the United States, and that affects the sun, that expects my ex exposure to sunlight. But what we saw during the pandemic, uh, during, let's say all of 2020. So during all of 2020, people lived restricted lives. So they had the thing, sort of things that normally keep us healthy, like exposure to sunlight, like getting exercise, like diet, like interacting with people in a positive way. Those things that we normally have in our lives that keep us healthy, those were interrupted. Those were put aside. And in, on top of with those things going us being squished down. We don't have so many opportunities to get outside to control what we eat or like I said, get some exercise. Instead, we get so much stress 
piled on us. So everybody, people are worried about their health. People lose their jobs. So they're worried about their futures, about their finances, people who own businesses. They're watching them crumble around them. And this is happening over the period of about a year, really. If you think about when we started going into some sort of restrictions, which was like March of 2020, and then when they really started lifting to an effective extent, it was more than a year for most people. It's different around the country. But for about a year and during all that time, so the stress is piled on and health impacts are piled on. And the things that normally we use to keep our health in a very and keep ourselves in a positive state, those are denied to a lot of people. So it is no surprise that depression and anxiety, they both soared. They just, they went up really high and they were initial data collection, like at the end of 2020, 2021, it showed that the rates of depression had early numbers show in the US like just about triple. And I'm saying that these are not necessarily diagnosed cases of depression. This is people who are sending out surveys and questionnaires and coming to the opinion that I think there's about, there's a whole lot more people showing probable depression and probable anxiety now at, let's say we're early 2021, late 2020, than before, than we measured before the pandemic got started. So there were a lot of reasons for what was going on. Like I said, huge amounts of stress, but also people being denied the sort of lifestyle factors that they had used, whether they knew it or not, they were, it was helping to keep them healthy. I think back, so for me, like I said, last winter, is was difficult. I realized late that I was actually very symptomatic for SAD. But I have lived, and I was in the Air Force for 31 and a half years. I have, I'm thinking particularly to an assignment in Stuttgart, Germany. I lived there for about two years. And Stuttgart, the same, same weather patterns, same latitude as where I live now, never had a moment's difficulty. But I had a different lifestyle then. I was working outside the home. So of course I went to a normal office. I'd say nine to five, but it's military. So like seven to five. I was interacting with people. I had to keep a certain diet and exercise just to get by. And I never had a moment's difficulty there. But here, when I was living a kind of a pandemic lifestyle of not getting out, of doing any work I did was remote and I didn't have to get up in the morning. I had this completely different lifestyle and that's where I really got hit with these problems. So we saw that during the during and following the pandemic, levels of depression and anxiety went really high. And there's lots of reasons for it. But a lot of it has to do with increased stress and a lot of it has to do with not being able to live the sort of lives and control our lifestyles like we used to do before the pandemic. So I hope people are realizing that if they're, if something's weird and they might not be the ones that realize it, it might be a loved one, someone who lives with them, who looks at them and says not to be accusatory thing, you're behaving a little differently now. You seem to be, things seem to be a little bit off. They people should realize that there are very good reasons why things are off. And it is very likely that they are suffering some after effects of what changed of the lives we lived during the pandemic. So it doesn't hurt to go talk to somebody and see if you need help. Perhaps you need to intentionally recapture the lifestyle you had before 
and maybe that's enough to do it, but you might have also tipped the balance so that maybe you need some some more help before you can get back to what your normal life was before the pandemic. So lots and lots of people are going through this. And it's important to keep that in mind because not to feel like you're because feeling alone can of course in itself be so isolating and create that the shame and it's almost like feeding the negative feelings of oh I must be the only one no one else seems to be feeling this way as we mentioned earlier that's why it's so helpful to speak publicly about it or to hear other people speak publicly about it because it's removing that shame or stigma from it and you're also yeah. pointing out that it is okay to ask for help and it's yes. okay to talk to loved ones about it and maybe ask them if they've noticed anything, if they haven't felt comfortable pointing it out to you, maybe just having an open conversation about it. You also talked about lifestyle changes and the impact of lifestyle on how yeah. we're feeling. And I think that's so important too, because our lives aren't always going to be the same. Even if we think we're staying the same, we have the same job, we haven't changed our family too much. Maybe we haven't moved. Any of these big things in our life might feel steady, but if the world's changing around us and we don't have control over it, of course that's going to impact us. You're also pointing out the way you might feel in a different career, the way you may feel in a different part of the world. There's so many nuances to what impacts our well-being. And yes. sometimes we might not even think of it. Do you recommend doing some sort of journaling or is there another practice that helped you when you were, for instance, recognizing that you had sad, but it took you some time to get there? Were there some practices that you did or did somebody else point out what was going on with you? How did you come to that realization? The first indications were the physical changes in my body. One of the things that that really struck me as I was learning about depression and learning what it is to the greatest extent that, extent that science knows what it is. Like, like I said, there's different theories. So not everyone, know, nobody knows precisely what it is, but science knows a lot more about it now than they used to. And it's startling them out. I was surprised by how physical depression is. And by that, I mean, depression always includes, to be diagnosed, depression is going to include either feelings of sadness. They call it feeling depressed. Okay. Defining something in terms of itself is not always very helpful, but either low mood most of the time or all the time for at least two weeks. It's going on for a while and it's almost all the time. Or what I talked about, anhedonia, where you just don't enjoy the things you used to enjoy. So that's a necessary criteria. It's either low mood or just not enjoying anything. But then there's also other symptoms. People usually either sleep too much or can't sleep at all. They usually either eat too much or they lose their appetite. They often feel guilty. They Their thoughts dwell in death a lot. And there's they usually go through something that's called either, they're either agitated or they're physically slower. But those physical, so the appetite, sleep, your agitation level, 
those are things that we always think of as physical symptoms. And that's where I noticed it first in myself. It was like I said, weight gain and can't get out of bed. What is wrong with me here now? But depression is very physical. So it does affect how people physically are. And that, that might be the first thing that people notice. Because like you said, in, in a little while ago, having, being sad sometimes is normal. How do you tell what's normal? And especially trade a pandemic, <laughs> things are not good. Why wouldn't you feel sad? And maybe you don't take pleasure in stuff because you're, you used to like to go to the movies or you used to like to go out to dinner and now all the restaurants and movie theaters are closed. So of course you don't take pleasure in things that you used to. So it's hard to sometimes to separate what's a normal experience of being sad and just, or low, or just not feeling great versus being depressed, being something that a doctor would diagnose as you have depression. And so it might be that the physical symptoms are the ones, the sleeplessness, or like I said, can't get out of bed. The, those are the things that might show up first that might tip you off that, huh, this is something's a little bit different here. And then when you do an inventory about what, how do I feel? And when's the last time I really felt happy? So you asked me what I do. So one of the first things I made sure my exercise program, thank goodness, I got myself up eventually and got on my treadmill and got some exercise every day. I started working on my diet because like I said, I was gaining weight. I was nothing really bad, but serious muffin top going. And I just didn't like that. I didn't like to think that I'm going to gain weight and not be able to turn it around. So I got on, focused on my diet, focused on my exercise. I did start not journaling, but being specific about what's my to-do list. Because I would also end a day, end a week and think I did nothing useful to anybody, including myself this whole week. What am I doing? And that's when I would start thinking, what am I just, what's my life about? Or am I just kind of waiting around waiting to die? So that's not healthy. Anyway, so make just a list, a to-do list that I actually did, keeping it manageable. And for me, that was, it was helpful. So diet, exercise, to-do list. And I guess it eventually got me to the point out of my, my, by sad enough that I was able to look back and realize, oh, <laughs> there was actually something going on there. It might be whatever help helps you, whether it's journaling, writing down your feelings, and then looking at it and thinking, this seems a little darker than what I remember my feelings being like, or getting after the things that have changed in your lifestyle. Okay, I really do need to clean up my diet and I really do need to get out for walks, get outside and making yourself do that. Little things, Depression is a spiral downwards, so getting better seems to be a little kind of lifting yourself with a spiral upward. Choose one thing you could do and get that one thing done. And then the next day, maybe there's two things. It takes a bit to get yourself back up. I hope that you've noticed during this show how much there is to learn from other people. Really important conversations can happen on podcasts. And this is a great time for me to mention the show's sponsor, Zencaster, because they help me make all of this happen. They have created this platform that's all in one, allows me to record really high quality audio, record video up to 4K resolution. They now have all these neat new features that'll help podcasters like myself distribute through all the major players where you're listening to this, monetize like ads, like including this very one that I'm doing right now even do some editing. It's been an absolutely amazing tool. So if you're interested in having these types of conversations on a show of your own, or if you have a show and you're looking to improve it, I cannot recommend Zencaster enough. 
And because they're sponsoring the show, they are offering a 30% off discount on your first three months of Zencaster Professional. All you have to do is use my code WELLEVATORZEN, that's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R-Z-E-N, at ZencasterPricing.com, or <laughs> Zencaster.com slash pricing. I will link to that so that you don't make the same mistakes <laughs> as I do in the show notes, as well as in the description of this episode to make it really easy, Zencaster.com slash pricing. See, I could edit this out using their tool, but <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I want to keep this authentic like my show. So thank you for listening. I want you to have the same pretty simple experiences that I have, aside from all the human error out there that can happen. Uh, And I don't have my editors do my uh, ads at all. But I hope that you get to have this wonderful experience with your podcasting and content needs so that you can tell your story as well as other people's stories that come on your show as guests. Now back to the episode. One thing that I saw in the description of your book, Fighting Chance, is depression's relationship with stress, inflammation, and circadian rhythm. So we've touched upon stress and a bit about sleep and circadian rhythms. I would love to hear more about the inflammation side of it. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. So like I said, depression is actually a very physical illness. And I mean that in, in multiple senses. Like I said, it affects how our physical bodies, but there's also, there are physical changes going on in the brain of a depressed person. And those physical changes in the brain lead to the symptoms of depression. One, there's two, let's say bads that bad things that can happen to your brain. So in depression, brain imaging shows that people with depression, they've actually lost some tissue. They've lost brain tissue. There are some types of brain cells that disappear but mostly, if you think of the processing parts of the brain, the neurons, they have many fewer connections. Our brains work. There's a neuron that gathers up inputs from various signals. It's, it, it fires and sends off various signals to other neurons. But there's fewer connections, so fewer signaling, less signaling is going on. So there's a physical change to the brain. And like I said, two big, two bad things that are happening in your brain that actually eat away brain tissue. One of them is inflammation and chronic low-level inflammation. And the other is the actions of free radicals. Uh, they call it oxidative stress. And those factors together are, in my mind, it's kind of like just wearing away the your brain tissue. And it's related to stress. So it turns out stress and inflammation are related. When we go, when we have what they call acute stress, so something bad happens, or let's say you're attacked by a lion, ah, stress, <laughs> run away. Your body goes through certain phases and it, one of the phases of the runaway part of your body, it's going to trigger your adrenal glands to produce uh, some substances. And at kind of the end of the cycle, cortisol is substance your body produces. Cortisol is anti-inflammatory. If you've ever heard of like hydrocortisone, there's medications, lots of medications that are based on cortisol and they are anti-inflammatories. So they bring inflammation down. When you have, and it's the tail end of the stress response, release, it has your body releasing these anti-inflammatory agents. When you're under chronic stress, so now think about the pandemic stress where people are worried about their jobs, their finances, their health. They've got 
say they've got kids who should be in daycare crawling all over them. Anyway, there are just and these, and it's long-term. It goes on for a year or more. There's this long, low level, but continuous stress. Mm-hmm. Your body under chronic stress doesn't release the anti-inflammatories. It tends to release pro-inflammatory agents. So under chronic stress, your whole body gets a low level of inflammation, including your brain. So now stress, chronic stress makes your brain a little bit inflamed. And over time, those inflammatory agents, they're wearing away some of the brain tissue. So that's one, it's an example of how stress leads to physical changes in your body and your brain's part of your physical body. And that those changes in your brain start to lead to the symptoms of depression. It's something that we've all been going through, like I said, the chronic stress. And for a lot of people, it's enough to make the changes in your brain that are going to start you on the path to depression. That's so fascinating. One of the big takeaways from this episode thus far is about all these physical symptoms, these physical changes. And I think that's really important because many of us might think of depression as just this mental or emotional process. Yeah. But it's, and the physicality is, to me is really important in the destigmatization because I, you can't help. <laughs> you can't help if some something physical is happening to you. You mentioned circadian rhythms. Circadian rhythms, when the sun comes up, our body releases certain chemicals. You know, we see the sun, we see sunlight, body releases certain chemicals, and you just keep on going along your day. So it doesn't happen. When you're, you don't see the sun, your body's not releasing those substances, and physically you're changing. But the thought that that people are, that depression happens only to the weak people. That's no, that is not right. It's a physical illness. It is a physical illness and it shows up in your physical well-being, but it also shows it comes from physical factors. So people should not be ashamed of suffering from depression. It's got a cold. Okay. You got to deal with it. Only you, your brain has got a cold and it's showing up in this these mood symptoms, but also, like I said, sleeplessness, agitation, all the other things that depressed people sometimes notice first before they even notice the low mood. It's also interesting because I feel like because depression has felt stigmatized that maybe that's led so many people to not learn so much about it and to just see the, again, the the way the media addresses it, or maybe the small things they read at the doctor's office. And if you've never been diagnosed with depression, if you've never taken antidepressants, perhaps you've barely come across this information, or maybe you've only heard the anecdotal stories from somebody in the media or through a book. But I think the scientific side of it, as you're outlining it, is so valuable because it's really painting a deeper, richer picture of what exactly is going on in the body so people can help recognize the signs within each other. Yeah. And something else I saw on your page for your book is how depression is the leading cause of ill health and disability worldwide. And this was something I actually happened to hear twice this week 
earlier, I believe it was in a TED talk I was watching with Susan David, a psychologist. And that fact really shocked me. She even said that it has overtaken depression in terms of ill health and disability has overtaken cancer and heart issues. I hope I'm not uh, quoting that wrong. Death. Yes. Uh, Cancer and heart issues, at least in the US and probably around the world, cancer and heart and heart disease are the leading cause of death to my memory around the world. But one of the things about depression is it usually doesn't kill you. It just drags on and on. And if especially when people can't get effective help, they're struggling with it. They're miserable. They're leading these unhappy lives for years. And they just, they, if they can't if they can't get effective help, if they can't get rid of the depression, it just drags through their lives for a long time. So when you look at the years lost to disability, or you know what, like I said, when you can't get out of bed, (laughs) you're disabled, I can't get out of bed, I'm not going to come to work. Boss doesn't understand. He's just saying, I don't care, get out of bed, come to work. By the fact that people don't realize that how much of an illness, how much of a disease it is, it makes it hard to hard for people to ad- recognize and admit they have it, hard for them to get effective treatment, and it just drags through their lives if they don't. So one thing that was that's useful in the conversation that came up about this serotonin, it's not the cause of depression, is the fact that Pharmaceutical companies, they do rule the airways, at least in the US, and they put their products out there and they're pushing their products. And their products are very useful. For a lot of people, they might even be life-saving. So I don't want to downplay the use of antidepressant medications, but what gets lost in that very vocal presentation from the pharmaceutical companies are the other things that we call lifestyle factors. Like I said, diet, exercise, those matter for depression, getting outdoors into the fresh air, getting exposed to the beneficial elements of our world, those matter to depression also. I'm glad, I hope that people who need antidepressants, for whom antidepressants are going to be the final key that help them get over their depression, get into remission, I, I hope that they will continue to take them. But people should not ignore lifestyle elements either. And especially healthy people who are right now healthy, don't ignore the lifestyle elements because you your health is not guaranteed. <laughs> if you don't get an adequate amount of exercise and don't eat a reasonably nutritious diet, your health is not guaranteed. So keep up with the lifestyle. And for people with depression, yes, talk to your doctor, do what your doctor recommends. Talk with your doctor, make sure you understand the recommendations and do what they recommend, but don't ignore the life cycle. Life cycle is really important. Lifestyle, I'm sorry. Lifestyle is very important. I'd love to hear more about the disability side of it because I'm still trying to learn about disability. I'm becoming more aware of ableism, people that Mm -hmm. don't take into account others with disabilities. And there are, at least for me, I oft, when I think of a disability, I often think of a physical disability. And even though we've been discussing the physical manifestations of depression today, yeah, a lot of the forms of depression are invisible. So when you're talking about disability in terms of depression, is it 
those invisible disabilities or does it manifest in more physical ways that I'm aware of? All of it. So the physical, I think when the World Health Organization measures, okay, how many years are lost to disability? I think when they're measuring that, they're measuring people not being able to show up to work or not being able to do their work. So I think that they're measuring the physical impacts. And when they say depression is the leading cause of years lost to disability in the world, they're saying, we're talking physical, we're talking people who cannot show up to work or they cannot do their jobs because of their depression. But depression is pretty insidious. One of the, among the symptoms of depression is our difficulty concentrating and difficulty remembering things. So if you have, imagine you're trying to do your job, but, and you finally, you, you get yourself out of bed. All right, I'm out of bed. I'm dressed. That's for me, that's a big win in the morning. But let's say this is your life, but you're trying to talk to me, talk to somebody else that with, in a conversation in, in your podcast, and you can't concentrate. You can't quite remember what did I want to say? What am I trying to get across? So you're not doing your job well. That's another level of disability that people with depression suffer. But I do think when the World Health Organization is measuring years lost disability, they're talking physical. They're talking people who cannot show up to work or cannot do their jobs. And it's very high with depression. I'm just deeply fascinated by this because even that experience of feeling like you can't get out of bed, you can't go to work, has been discussed so much. I see it a lot on social media. I see it a lot from younger generations too. And Sarah, I'm also curious, how do you define depression when there seems to be a lot of gray areas? What is, how do you know when you're, you're clinically depressed versus just feeling depressed. Is it is feeling depressed still depression or is that just a temporary feeling, if that makes sense? There seems to be a lot of gray areas there. Yeah. No? There's a lot of gray areas. So basically if it's temporary, don't worry about it. It's just everyone has a bad day. Right. The medical community, in order to diagnose people, they have a standard and they there's a manual for diagnosing depression as well as other mental illnesses, mental health issues. In their standard, they say, okay, we're going to take a basically a two-week period because it if it's intense, it might be shorter than two weeks. But let's say on the average, we want to talk to a person. We're trying to separate someone who's just, just a little down. Life was not something they lost their job. They're unhappy about that, but they're going to they're gonna they're not ill. They're going to bounce back and and they're going to be okay. But they're a little unhappy about something. So you take about a two-week period. In that two-week period, like I said, there's two key symptoms, one or the other. Either you've lost pleasure in doing things that you normally take pleasure in doing, or you just have this low mood. And it's every day or almost every day, almost all the time for at least two weeks. So you're looking for this mood issue to really be definitely noticeable and long lasting. But then, so you start with one of those, but then they have to diagnose depression. They recommend that there's another list of symptoms and these are mostly physical symptoms. And if somebody hits at least three of those symptoms, then that's when you're thinking, okay, this is very likely what we would call a clinical diagnosable depression. And that includes the sleep 
you can't sleep or you sleep too much. And noticeably, we're talking noticeably, or you can't eat or you eat too much or this agitation, everything's fast. You're talking fast. You're doing everything really fast or you're really slow. So you're looking at them hitting at least three of those physical symptoms. And again, for a period of at least two weeks. So a lot is left up to the judgment of the physician, but those are the guidelines that you're hitting definitely a mood symptom for at least two weeks. And it's pretty noticeable, but then you're hitting at least three, maybe four of these other, what we think of as physical symptoms. That's when they diagnose depression, something that can pop you. If you attempt suicide or you're really thinking about suicide, that'll pop you to the top of the list. You don't have to really hit any other symptoms for them to say, okay, something's wrong here. You need to be treated. But yeah, it is really, it is a really vague, it's often criticized, the method of diagnosing depression is often criticized because it's really sounds vague, touchy feeling. And you're here's a doctor asking a patient, do you see this? Have you seen this in yourself? Maybe the patient's not really self-aware or it's asking them to report their symptoms so that the doctor can diagnose them. So it's that, anyway, there are criteria for diagnosing depression, but they're all kind of, eh, just kind of, it's really, it's bad. It's hitting these levels and it's stretching out for at least two weeks. Is there legitimacy to self-diagnosing yourself. You wouldn't be able to get medication, but there are over-the-counter options. I'm curious how you feel about someone who might take an herbal remedy for depression. Are those safe to take in terms of your mental health? They might be safe for your physical health, but are they, if you're trying to treat it yourself, is there danger with? There there are some dangers. There are some herbal remedies. Like if you've ever heard of St. John's wort, it's actually been tested. It is a, it's been clinically tested and seems to be effective. It's like an antidepressant. It's a plant-based antidepressant. Though I would, I'd be cautious about self-medicating without a doctor's supervision. In a way, you can go to your psychiatrist, or not a psychiatrist, you, you would go to your physician. People usually don't go straight to the psychiatrist unless, like I said, there's a suicide attempt or a lot of suicidal ideation, in which case, go to the psychiatrist. But normally, you're just not feeling up to speed. You would go to your physician, talk to them about your symptoms. And as long as they, you talk to them about, hey, I'd like to take this supplement, this St. John's wort, as long as they're aware and you have open communication with them, so if something's not working out well, you talk to the physician, I think they'd be okay with that. It has been tested to be pretty effective. The other way that, so the other way to, let's not call it self-medicate, but to correct lifestyle deficiencies, there are some nutritional supplements that help correct lifestyle dietary deficiencies that might be vitamin D. I think vitamin B is also another one that's that is deficiencies can lead to mental health issues. Those are taking reasonable amounts. People do that. There's a reason why the FDA doesn't control those. But if you're struggling, if you think that I might actually be depressed, I'd say talk to your physician and talk to them about what you want to do, what you plan to do. And if he says, oh, I want to prescribe you this antidepressant, you always have the right to say, no, I don't want to do that right now. Let's keep the communication open. I don't want to do that yet. I want to try a different approach first. You absolutely have the right to do that, but do keep the communication open. Depression is a, it can be, like we've talked about it being so disabling. What we haven't really talked about is the link to suicide, which is of course the most frightening and horrible outcome, potential outcome of depression. Suicide has a little different biology than straightforward depression, but there's a lot of overlap. 
So anyone feeling with their just constantly dwelling on thoughts of death or feeling like they are likely to make a suicide attempt, they should absolutely talk to the doctor and they should really take very seriously the doctor's advice. But short of that, if you're just not feeling quite well, then talk to the doctor. But yeah, don't be afraid to try some of the the vitamins and nutritional supplements that people are showing this actually, they help in some ways. And how do you feel about psychedelics? Because as you were sharing that, I was thinking about Michael Pollan's work and his book, his Netflix series that talk about the science of psychedelics and how they can support things like depression. Yes. What have you come across in your research? Oh, so... There is a, like you saw with Michael Pollan's book, uh, which I read too, I really enjoyed. There is a resurgence of interest in psychedelics and early tests show, do show people with depression improving under with psychedelics. The problem is, so the medical community, what they love to do are these blind tests. So it might be that people are charged up with, hey, I get to take a psychedelic. Woo, my, my dad took LSD, but <laughs> it's been illegal for so long and now I get to take it. Woohoo. And maybe it's there are factors that have nothing to do with the action of psychedelics that would make them feel better for at least a little while. So scientists like to do blind tests. They like to do these randomized controlled trials where half the people would be on placebo and the other half would be on psychedelics. The problem is there there is no placebo. There's no way to have somebody not know <laughs> that they took a psychedelic trip. There's no way to truly test these these remedies and see if they're effective. But even unblinded tests, it's they're looking positive. So I'm glad that there are there are doctors and scientists in, investigating this, and the it's sounding like it's very positive. I'm glad that the I don't know the authorities are willing to let doctors and scientists test this. I wouldn't self-medicate with psychedelics. That's that's a whole you just you're getting into a lot of brain changes there when it's really not something I would like I said I wouldn't do it yourself, but if somebody has a chance to be part of a clinical trial or I think there's just a few places in the US where doctors can go ahead and prescribe that. I heard rumors, I don't know for sure of any places, but I've heard rumors there's a few places in the US where doctors can prescribe that. Go Talk to one of those doctors and, and see if it's something that that helps. Again, don't self-prescribe psychedelics, but they're under medical supervision. It's looking kind of positive. Yeah, that's what I was really fascinated when I watched a few episodes of the Michael Pollan documentary or series on Netflix, how he was working alongside those doctors or not just working, he was observing them and sharing all the details of those clinical trials. And I thought that was really fascinating because when I think of psychedelics, I do think of something somebody's taking for leisure, they're doing with a group of friends, perhaps, and not something that happens in a medical office. Yeah, And I found that really interesting and the series definitely makes it look appealing, but yeah, <laughs> we're also in a time right now where it's easy when, if you're getting something off the street to not know where the source is. And to your point, but also there's not... all sorts of things that could go wrong if you just get it from <laughs> a friend yes, of a friend. <laughs> yeah. And so you don't know for sure what you're taking, but also you don't know if you're taken in a, let's say a medically effective manner. One thing that comes to mind, so there's a new, newly approved 
drug for depression. It's called ketamine. If you've ever heard of ketamine, it's well known as a, first of all, it's an anesthetic. It's also special K is a street drug. But what they found out in like the year 2000, there was a test that found that that a ketamine given to somebody at a very low dose, so it's like a, a micro dose of ketamine, has immediate rapid antidepressant effect that lasts for seven to 10 days. This is amazing. Someone who is so depressed, they can't get out of bed, whatever, they can get take some of this very low dose ketamine and they'll be happy, not happy, but fine and normal for seven to 10 days. But it only has antidepressant effect at that very low dose. So you can imagine someone getting, oh, I'm depressed. I'm going to get some special K. I'm going to get some street ketamine and taking it. They're endangering their lives. It is a, it's a street drug. Um, and But they're also not taking it in a way that has shown been shown to be any it, it, all effective against depression. So it's, it might be the same with psychedelics. Now, ketamine, I understand, has does have a psychedelic effect. So it might be that with, with LSD or, or psilocybin that there might be ways and dosages that are effective for depression and ways of administrating it and dosages that are just not effective for depression. So that's, again, that's why you want to be, if you're taking, if you want to take something like that for medical effect, you need to be connected to the medical community just so you get the right stuff and you know what you're doing. Sarah, I really appreciate your approach to all of this because you have so much data and you come across as both down to earth and deeply (laughs) informed. It's like you're making this feel like it is okay to talk about that there are solutions here, that there are so much pieces of information available to us now. I just feel so much hope and gratitude after this conversation. I really like data personally. I appreciate (laughs) anecdotes. I appreciate opinions. But when I can see studies done, I just feel like it legitimatizes things and makes me feel more at ease. So I'm really grateful for all the work that you've done around this subject matter And do you feel like your work has created the ripple effect that you were intending for it? Like, what has the result been for you putting, going through the process of writing this book and putting it out? How has that impacted you on a personal level? It's been, it has been important to me. So the book, the fact that I was trying to understand depression and trying to understand how do people get better, it's because of a friend who was who had made several suicide attempts and trying to help her trying to help first of all <laughs> so when i realized oh she's depressed she's attempting suicide this is very bad i go out on the internet say okay what's depression what can i do and there's an explosion of information some of it's really dubious it's all over the place and you look you scroll down through pages and pages of search results about depression and you just feel like I can't do anything. So I started peeling it apart. I started trying to understand what is this and how do these, what do these treatments actually do that affects this thing we call depression? And I really do feel like I was able to organize it and put it in a way that you have to be a little geeky or very motivated to read the book. It's got a lot of data and detail and facts. There's a lot there. Thank goodness there's a lot that science knows. So I'm able to report a lot of things that science knows. But one thing that I was able to do about it is, yes, to understand in myself what turns out to be, like I said, turns out to be my experience of SAD over the last year, 
going into this winter, I am doing things differently and I'm taking, I've got myself a light device. I'm taking different precautions and I'm feeling very positive that I'm going to, I'm not going to spend six months of every year being just miserable. So I'm going to do it better this year. So it helped myself. It helped me. It helped my friend. I do think that, so she's doing fine now. She did in, end up doing some of the ketamine treatments and and that helped. It, it Everything that she was able to do got her out of her suicidal depression into a much just normal, balanced, sometimes happy, sometimes not happy, just normal state. So that really, that was good. And I've heard from several readers, lots of different readers that it helped them. So yes, you, you write a book, you put it out there, like with your podcast, you, you spend a lot of work on it, you prepare for it, you do it, you edit it, you make it good and you put it out there. You don't know exactly what effect it's going to have, but when you hear reports back that, yes, this is this helped me, this is worthwhile, that's very rewarding. That's very motivating. I'm so glad to hear that, Sarah, that the story of how this came about is beautiful and the ways that it's impacted you, not just on an emotional level, but on a very practical level, like you're gearing up, you're, you've got yeah. more tools and insight, and it sounds like you're empowered and you're prepared for a different experience this year with all of these mental and physical tools. I'd love to hear which of the lights that you got, because I've heard a lot about the different lighting that you can put in your house to help with seasonal affective disorder. Yeah. So what did you choose for yourself? I went to the professionals. The One of the, one of the professional, the um, experts that, that I interviewed, uh, her name's Anna Wirtz-Justice, and she is part of the Center for Environmental Therapeutics. So I went to their website. They have lots of information for the public and information for professionals. And I went and looked at what light devices do they do they recommend? And I bought, there was one there that they recommend. And I bought that one. And so it's, I did this in June, knowing that I would need to prepare, but I don't need it quite yet. I'm thinking soon as the clouds roll in i'm going to i'm going to start using that device but yeah so i went with the prof professionals and i also contacted them to say how do i use this i'm trying to do it right it's a northern was it northern lights technology but it's on the center for environmental therapeutics cet.org website thank you so much for providing that because that's another thing that somebody could do right now if they're resonating with your story is to go to that website to check it out and I, also to have something vetted is helpful because yes. certainly you can go on to social media and see what all the people are recommending there. You can go right. onto Amazon, Amazon and it's like, you know, how do you know which one is worth your money? And again, is it a gimmick or is it actually going to work? And yeah, I think it if you're really you. struggling, yeah, yeah, it might take some experimenting, but a good place to start can be working with expert recommendations. So thank you so much for that and everything else sure. that you've shared with us today. Your wonderful book, Fighting Chance, is even that title is really compelling. It just shows us that we do have things available to us that can help us as something else that you said so brilliantly, which I think I'm going to make the title of this episode, is how to spiral upward. I thought that was... Yeah just so lovely because we often associate spiraling with going down, but we can spiral upward and we can have a fighting chance for taking care of ourselves and others. And that's why your work is so important to this world, Sarah. So thank you for being here. Thank you for writing that book. Thank, well, thank you for you. all that you do.
Thank you. You're absolutely welcome. And for the listener, I will link to the book. I will link to the website for the lights, for everything else that we have talked about today. There is a full transcript. There is a resource section for you to make it really easy. And that is available at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Thanks again for listening. And thank you, Sarah, for being here with us today. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.